BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When you're walking in the woods, you're often surrounded by trees, but you probably don't notice them much. And when you do spot some irregularity, like a strange bulge in the trunk of a tree, you likely don't have any idea how it got there. But my guest says that these trees you're passing by have all kinds of stories to share. And once you learn their language, they can tell you all sorts of secrets about the world and even help you navigate it. Tristan Gooley is an adventurer, expedition leader, natural navigator, and author of How to Read a Tree. Today on the show, he unpacks the clues in a tree's shape, branches, bark, roots, and leaves, what they can tell you about the environment, and how they can help you find your way. We also talk about what looking at a tree stump can reveal, the hidden seasons in trees, and the first place to look in a tree to spy fall foliage. We end our conversation with how to get started with reading trees today. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash tree. All right, Tristan Gooley, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Brett. So we've had you on the podcast a few times to talk about how to navigate your world just by looking at your environment. And you got a new book along the same lines, but this is called How to Read a Tree, Clues and Patterns from Bark to Leaf. So this is how we can look at trees and we can navigate with trees, You know, get our bearings in the world. But also what I love about it is you answer some questions that I've had whenever I'm out on a hike and I'm looking at a tree. For example, like one we'll talk about today, I hope, is, you know, you're walking, you see this tree and there's like this weird bulbous growth in the middle of the trunk and then it goes back to normal. Like, what is going on there? And what I love about all your books, and I got this with this book too, is when you read it, you immediately have things that you start looking at in your environment that just opens up like new worlds that you didn't know existed. You kind of, it feels like you're in on a secret. And so we're going to learn about the secrets of trees today. But before we talk about that, you start off the book saying that in order to read a tree, it's not really important for people to know the different species of a tree to get the benefit of reading trees. Why is that? I think people can be put off nature by thinking it's about identification. But we have to remember that we've evolved to to find meaning in nature without names. All over the world, you'll find different names for exactly the same tree So there isn't a correct one. Latin is no use to indigenous people, and they have some of the strongest skills in this area. So names are not the answer to finding meaning. 
What we, you know, have a lot of success with is if we realize that nothing is random and every color, every shape and every pattern is trying to reveal something about the life the tree has been through. And once we just sort of take that little shift in philosophy, we find we are surrounded by clues. Every single thing we see is revealing something. And so while you don't say we should focus on individual species, it is useful to know about, you know, broad families of trees because different families of trees will tell us different things about the environment. And like the broadest categories we can look at when it comes to trees are whether they're a conifer or a broadleaf tree. What can we learn about the environment depending on whether we see more conifers or broadleaf trees there? Yeah, I, th- I think even people new to the idea of, of looking at trees are comfortable with the idea that if we've got very dark needle-like foliage, that it's a conifer. And the conifers as a group evolved first, and they have a simple, tough architecture. And they are really good when the going gets tough. If the environment is particularly cold, particularly hot, very exposed to winds, or very dry, or the soil is a bit inhospitable, then conifers have, they've grown up to deal with that. Broadleaf trees came later, and they're more efficient, but they have a a more delicate system. So if the going's easy, if there's enough moisture in the soil, it's not too hot, not too cold, the broadleaf trees are more efficient, so they will start to outcompete the conifers. And what we find is if we see loads of broadleaf trees, and again, we don't have to worry about names, we can just sort of go, there are a load of broadleaves there, then we can say, the going's pretty easy, there's enough moisture, and it's not too tough, which means we're likely to find a lot of other smaller plants, a lot of animals, a lot of insects, a lot of birds, and most likely a lot of human beings as well. Human beings are pretty soft creatures as nature goes, so we tend to live in places where there are broadleaf trees. If we see conifers, there's something tough in the environment. So whenever we see conifers, we just pause and go, what's tough? Sometimes it's obvious because we're looking you know, halfway up a, a big mountain, but it's always worth asking the question. Yeah, I think here in Oklahoma, so a lot of broadleaf trees, but then you get into sort of the more rocky mountainous parts and you just see pine trees primarily, something like southeast Oklahoma. And so you think, well, the soil's rough here, so obviously a conifer would grow here. Yeah, and that's a, uh, one, one of the ways I think of it is when you're, when you might be happier in an all-terrain vehicle, a four by four or something like that, you know, the moment you're thinking that, that's the moment the conifers are going to the broadleaf trees. Okay, step aside. It's our turn now. We're going to take it from here. Let's talk about the shapes of a tree. So every tree is different. They're going to be shaped differently because of the environment they find themselves in. So what can the shape of a tree tell us about its environment? Well, all trees are a balance of a number of factors, but two of the biggest factors are the genetic, so the nature, and then the environment, the nurture. So a pine tree, for example, will never look like an oak tree, whatever whatever goes on in the environment. So conifers, generally speaking, tend to be um, tall, fairly skinny with branches that, that aren't horizontal. They tend to, to flow down more. And th- this is very good at dealing with snow, for example. But then what we find is the environment will shape each individual tree. And one of the core philosophies in the book is no two trees on the whole of planet Earth are identical. So they might start life with an identical genetic package, but then day one, they're experiencing slightly different things. And we see that in their shape. One of the simplest things is is sunlight makes trees shorter and fatter because they don't know what they're going to have to deal with in life. So their basic plan is to grow up and to grow you know, tall and skinny until they find some sunlight. And then when the top of the tree, the what's known as the apical bud, 
senses direct sunlight, it changes the messages to all the branches in the tree and says, okay, we can slow the race for the sky now and we can start spreading out. So the sunnier a place is, the shorter and the fatter a tree is. So if there's a particular type of tree you see a lot of, just notice how when you see it surrounded by other trees or in other shady places, it tends to be tall and skinny. And when you see it out on its own, drenched in sunlight, it's shorter and fatter. What can the shape of a tree tell us about the weather in an environment? I think last time we had you on, we talked about this like sort of microclimate. So there's like broad weather patterns, but then even in a specific area, there can be different types of weather. So what can the shape of a tree tell us about that? Each tree will respond to every day of weather. I I sometimes think of both the sun and the wind and indeed rain leaving footprints on trees. And if if anyone's new to this, the wind is a good place to start because, you know, a a light breeze is not going to change a tree in a way that we'll pick up in a dramatic sense. But if you look in exposed areas on high ground, if you're in a town or a city, there are places where, you know, the part of the park where a long street leads up to, you'll find these gusty winds. And what you'll find is, for example, the branches go shorter on the side the winds come from. Uh, And there are patterns here, long-term trends. So in many parts of the world, we get more winds from the west or the southwest, and we find that 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 leaves footprints. You'll notice the tops of the trees are bent over. And indeed, every single branch and, and actually every single leaf can be read in this way. But when anyone's new to this, I recommend, you know, look for the the really bold, dramatic stuff. Go, you know, whenever you have the opportunity to look at a tree on its own on the top of a hill, it will just, it will scream uh, direction and it will tell you a whole story about, about what the wind has been doing to it. Okay. So that's one way a tree can help you navigate. So if you're looking at it from a long distance away, if it looks like one side has shorter branches than the other, that's uh, where the wind is hitting it. And so, you know, wind typically comes from the west. So you can say, well, that short side, that's west. And then the longer side is east. Yes, absolutely. And every single part of the tree is responding to that. The tree itself will grow shorter in the wind. And this leads when you've got a a wood that you can see from a little distance. So you've got a little bit of perspective. It leads to something I call the wedge effect. And this is where trees grow shorter in the wind. So what we find is the tree at the windward edge of the wood will be the shortest. And then the next tree downwind, just a couple of steps to the east, is getting a little bit of shelter from the first tree. So it grows a tiny bit taller. And this leads to a wedge. It sometimes from a distance looks like a a sports car driving into the wind. And we find there are lots and lots of little little layers that we can add. So the trees are shorter, but they're also denser because the branches are shorter. So we find it looks much darker on the side of a wood that the wind has come from. And this is the sort of thing where you might go a couple of days and not see it. And then the first time you see it, it just screams out to you. And our brain absolutely loves that. So it kind of stores it. It goes, I like this. I like being able to find meaning in a simple pattern. And that starts a, a relationship with these signs, which, which all our ancestors had. So that's sort of looking at trees overall, the shape of a tree. But then you start getting more specific, different things we can look at in a tree to learn more. And one of them is the branches of a tree. What can a tree's branches, when you look at them closely, what can they tell us about the environment? And then how can they potentially help us navigate? So this is a, a good example of nature and nurture. So again, the tree doesn't know the world it's it's growing up in. So it it has to respond to what it finds. And the branches the exact angle they start life will depend on, on their genes, on their species, but we don't need to know that. But if we imagine branches starting by growing, let's say, 45 degrees up, then from day one, the growing bud is responding to light. So on the south side, the branches grow out towards the southern sky. 
leading to a more horizontal pattern in the branches. On the north side of the tree, there's no direct sunlight. The only light those growing buds get is from directly above, the blue sky above them. And so that leads to branches on the north side that grow up towards the sky. And seen from the side, if you look from the east or west side of a tree, it sometimes screams out. You see these horizontal branches on the south side, more vertical branches on the north side, and it can look like a check. And so I nickname it the check effect, or in this country, we call it the tick effect. Well, another one too related to this is this idea of the southern eye. And this is something you've discovered recently that you kind of discovered it serendipitously when you're out on a hike. Yeah, I was exploring a small nature reserve called Snitterfield. It's in Stratford near sort of Shakespeare country. And it was the end of a day's micro exploring. And I'm always, I'm always looking for signs. That's what I do. That's my job, but it's what I do for joy as well. And uh, it'd been a long, fun, interesting day. And I, was, I just stopped. And, and so often stopping, it just, it just allows our senses and our brain to notice things that we've been passing. And I was just having a snack and, and I just suddenly saw the trees looking at me. And I thought, that's odd. And what I was seeing was something that I've, I've subsequently nicknamed the Southern Eye. But what it is, it does look on smooth bark trees, and we might come on to talk about bark, but on smooth bark trees, it's more dramatic. On rough bark, it's a little bit harder to make out. But you see this, this, this shape that really does sometimes look exactly like an eye. And all it is, is where a tree has pruned its own branch off. So again, trees, they're not given any advanced information. They don't know what they're going to grow into. So what they do is they put out a branch when there's lots of light and then they grow branches higher up and they end up shading their own branches or another tree shades them. So instead of keeping a branch that's doing no good and not harvesting any energy, they actually, they change the message to that branch. They shut it down and they seal it off. It's almost like closing a gate and that branch will eventually die and fall off. And it leaves if the process has gone well and there haven't been any sort of fungi problems or anything like that. you're left with this little scar on the bark. And depending on the size of the branch, the eye, it might be very small. It might not be much bigger than a coin. Very often it's it's sort of palm sized. And the, the thing is, because you get more branches on the south side, because there's more light, eventually you end up with more branches pruned on the south side. So more of these southern eyes. And the reason I love it is because it's a really good example to me personally, where I've spent literally decades looking for these sorts of things. And yet, something which is quite, you know, it does stand out when you know to look for it. It had passed me by for years and years. And then as soon as you know to look for something, it's pretty hard to miss. And that's, that's a sign I'm onto something when it's, when it's obvious in hindsight, but we can go our whole lives and almost miss it. Well, another navigation sign you found on trees, it's similar to the Southern Eye, is a trunk shoot compass. What's a trunk shoot compass? Yeah. So Uh, trees have a it's it's like an emergency plan they have a load of branch buds that are dormant and they sit under the bark and we never see them if things are going well so the chemical messages that typically are coming from the top of the tree down are saying to these dormant buds you just chill out there's no need for you guys to do anything we've got this plan a is working and then if the tree experiences a trauma or stress of some kind it might be fungi it might be a structural problem. It might be a storm. Basically, if the tree senses it is under attack and things are going very badly, the tree changes the chemical messages. And these dormant buds, which might have sat there for years and years doing nothing, suddenly get a different message. It's like pulling the emergency cord. The message is, okay, you guys now need to spring into action. And what happens is these buds, known as epicormic buds, they start to sprout out through the trunk, but they respond most dynamically to light. And again, 
We get more light from the south side. So we find these kind of really bushy little bunches of branches just poking out of the south side of a tree. But it typically only happens if that tree's experienced some trauma. But it's, it's, it's very common if you walk through through any woodland that are, particularly if human beings have been doing anything, we tend to make life quite stressful for trees. So you're very likely to spot some. Okay, so if you see those little branch shoots from the trunk, on, that's probably gonna be on the south side. That's a navigation tool there. Uh, let's talk about the trunk in general. What can the trunk show us about the tree's environment? There are some things that are really glaring and leap out. The simplest sign is the texture of the bark. All bark is performing the same function. So it's quite interesting that we see so many different patterns. One of the reasons for the different patterns is the different ways the trees grow. They have different strategies to either grow very fast or to grow slowly and, and, and bigger. And that changes the texture. But the simplest sign to look for is rough bark is a sign that that tree is expecting to deal with harsh environment and possibly animals. So each family of trees specializes in a different area. So birch trees, for example, are known as pioneer trees, and they're kind of the smash and grab family of trees. If they see an opportunity, so for example, if we cleared part of a woodland, if you come back in 10 years, there'll be loads of young birch trees there because they, they scatter millions of seeds in the wind. And, and part of their strategy is just to grab a piece of land and grow super fast to just kind of kind of grab it for themselves. But because they're expecting to grow up sometimes on their own in quite sort of exposed areas, they have this very tough bark and that, that protects them against the elements, but also against animals. Other trees have evolved to specialize in woodland settings and they're much more gregarious. They're much more social. They like to be surrounded by other trees, typically of their own kind. Something like a beech tree, very smooth bark. So the simple sign is rough bark. This is a tree that is more common in open areas at the edges of woodlands. So if we're finding our way from the center of a woods out, we typically go from smooth bark to rough bark. Let's talk about those bulges that you might sometimes see growing in the middle of a trunk. What's going on there? What's, what causes that? We've got different types of bulges and it can become a very specialist area. So I don't want to give the impression that you can diagnose every single thing that's going on for a tree instantly. But you get sort of semi-spherical swellings, technically known as a spheroblast, but that's a good example of the tree scientists putting a sort of complex sounding word on something that they don't fully understand. And these buds I mentioned, which um, sprout out and can give us the trunk shoot compass, those buds don't always follow a, a simple plan. And for reasons we don't always understand, it could be viruses or fungi, they sometimes, the plan goes a bit wrong and it leads to a bit of a bulge, but that's not always a serious worry for the tree. The other types of bulges you get come from uh, structural weaknesses. So if there's a storm, for example, and the trunk suffers a crack, if the crack's all the way across the trunk, it's most likely to be game over. But quite often there'll be a, a crack which is only partially um, through the trunk. And the way, the way trees are dealing with these sorts of stresses is to grow extra wood. So we'll find ribs that are vertical and we'll find bulges and sort of ring shapes and things like that. The only thing we can say for certain is that the tree has grown some extra wood to deal with a challenge. Identifying exactly what the challenge is can be quite a tall order. But if you see that, you can assume there was some sort of challenge. Could have been a fungus, could have been you know something broke or whatever, and it's just compensating for that. So I think that's interesting. Another interesting thing I learned about trunks from your book is the way trees grow. Let's say you go to a tree and you carve your initials. You sh shouldn't do that, but let's say you do. Uh, if you were to come back 20 years later, 10 years later, I think a lot of people think, well, the carving will be higher, but that's not what happens. Actually, the carving stays in the same place, even though the tree has gotten taller. 
Yes, it's a very popular misconception about the way trees grow. And I believe it springs from the way we we sometimes see time-lapse videos of, you know, small plants growing from seed, and we see them kind of wriggling upwards. Uh, And of course, there has to be some upward growth, otherwise a small plant never becomes a tall tree. But trees have two types of growth. They have primary growth, and that's when the little seedling and the, the green bud is moving upwards. And the second a tree forms bark, a different type of growth takes place, known as secondary growth. And this is where it gets steadily fatter, but it stopped moving up. So the top of the tree, where the bud is, will continue that primary growth. So at the very top of any tree, it doesn't matter what family or species you're looking at, there could be growth going on at the very top where the bud is still going on. But if you see bark, there is no vertical growth at all. What's happening is it's getting steadily fatter. And what this means is if you carve something into it, like, uh, of course, I wouldn't recommend anybody does that because it does harm the tree. But we will come across these markings, graffiti. You know, it's, it's, it's been common for people to do little love messages, you know, Leo for Gemma. And what you'll notice is they're nearly always close to head height because that's the height people carve these things. And you, you can sometimes find graffiti from, from 50 years ago, maybe even 100 years ago occasionally. And you'll, you'll notice it hasn't moved upwards because the, the trunk hasn't. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast growing trees right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, 
it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So you're likely to encounter tree stumps on a hike, and those stumps can be created from a tree falling down naturally or from being cut down. Anything that stumps can tell us about the environment or help us navigate? Yeah, stumps are a golden opportunity. If time allows, I encourage everybody to pause for at least a minute and just see if you can find a story about that tree. It's come down for a reason. As you say, it could be a a storm. And it's worth just sort of saying there that trees typically come down in one of two ways. There's what's known as wind throw, which is when the root ball is torn out of the ground and the tree stays largely intact. That can be used to navigate because they typically come down in a trend in the direction the storm's gone through in. But wind snap is when the trunk itself snaps. That's very rare unless there's been some weakening, like a, a fungus or a disease of some kind. But foresters are constantly felling trees and that's where we get our cleanest stumps and there we can look for slightly different messages because we get to see the rings and a lot of these tree signs would have been known by our ancestors and are indeed known by indigenous people to this day one of the few things that is still common knowledge is counting rings to age the tree but there are lots and lots of subtleties within that so a lot of people aren't aware, for example, that we only see the rings because there are two types of growth there, the early and the late growth, and they have slightly different colors, which is why we see rings. But the more interesting thing from in, in my world is that the heart of a tree, the very center, in terms of if you count in from the rings, you go to the center there. The interesting thing is that is not the center, by which I mean, and it sounds illogical, but the heart of a tree, the middle of the rings, the smallest circle, if you like, is very, very rarely in the center of that trunk. And the reason is there are three major factors that will change the pattern in the rings and therefore where we find the heart in the stump. So the three factors are light, wind, and gravity. So 
for example, a broadleaf tree, because broadleaves and conifers uh, don't respond to things in exactly the same way. But if we just think about a broadleaf tree for now, more light on the southern side, more branches, more weight there, we end up with the heart slightly closer to the southern edge. But then what we'll find is it's contending with the wind as well. And that will actually push the heart to the opposite direction to the winds coming from. And then there's gradient as well. I don't want to list all the, basically you've got conifers and you've got broadleaves and you've got three different factors. But the simple truth is the heart is there for a reason. And what I encourage people to do to keep it sort of straightforward and fun early on is the next time you see a freshly or a recently enough cut tree stump on a steep gradient, just have a look. And it's even better, which is quite often when foresters are doing lots of work, it's even better when you can see a half a dozen or a dozen of these stumps in one place. You'll start to notice the trend. You'll start to go, ah, yeah, I can see, for example, that the hearts are much, much closer to the downhill side of the trunk. And once we've picked up those patterns, they form a compass and help us with our journeys. Well, the other interesting thing about uh, tree stumps, I didn't know this, but I've noticed this, but I didn't know what was going on. It's this cake slice effect. So you're looking at a tree stump and it looks like there's this dark triangle and it looks like a piece of cake has been taken out of the tree stump. And like the bulge in a tree trunk, that cake slice is just a sign that there's some sort of infection the tree encountered and it was trying to to deal with it and just kind of cordon it off. Yes. One of the clever tactics that a tree has is if it's attacked by something like a, a fungus, even if it can't beat the fungus, it can box the fungus in. So trees can stop infection moving vertically up and down the trunk. They can stop a fungus moving in or out, i.e. crossing rings. But the one we'll see most often is exactly as you've described there, is if we imagine the spokes on a wheel, we have these kind of radial walls that go from the heart out to the, the bark, and they can lock an infection into a cake slice. And quite often this infection will change the color of the wood. So if you find... Um, a sawn tree stump or indeed timber stacked, you know, dozens of logs in a in a pile. Just keep an eye out and every so often you'll spot this cake slice. I think all of us can probably remember pie charts from school. It just looks a bit like one of those kind of slices there. It's a different color and that's the tree locking a problem into a compartment. Uh, what can the roots of a tree tell us about the environment and how can they be used to navigate? This is a, a lovely, lovely example for me of where I never, ever fall into the trap of thinking that I've discovered all the interesting stuff there is to discover. I'd be delighted if somebody told me I'd, I'd discovered 10% of it. But but I'd, for many years, used a one tree technique, which I'll, I'll discuss in a moment. But I'd never noticed this, the second one, which I'll, I'll also share in just a sec. So the, the first one is roots have two, two main roles. The first is to supply the tree with water and minerals. And the second one is to give the tree structural stability. Because we can imagine if the trunk just went vertically down into the ground, the first strong wind, that trunk's going to topple. So we have guy roots. And these are roots very like guy ropes on a tent, which anchor the tree against the wind. And they will grow bigger, stronger, and longer on the side that the winds come from. Now, it's tempting to kind of think, well, that's that's sort of uh, interesting, but I'm never going to see that because the roots are underground. But this is another very popular misconception because the trunk and the roots meld into each other just above the ground. So at head height, we're definitely looking at the trunk and a couple of feet underground, we're definitely thinking of roots. But between those two areas, the trunk becomes the roots. And what that means is they start to flare out and we can see the roots in most tree families above ground, particularly close to the trunk. 
And the simplest way to put it is if you look at the pattern of roots around the base of a tree, and if it's the first time you're doing it, pick some isolated tree that's a bit exposed to, to the elements. The root that is furthest from the trunk is most likely to be on the windward side. So if your winds are coming from the west, that is giving you an indication of west. And that, that's a technique I've been using for natural navigation for well over a decade, probably 15 years. And something which is so closely related to that, but I'd never noticed, is that you know, trees are fantastic engineers. They've solved so many engineering problems that it took us uh, you know, until very recently to work out. And something engineers know now is that right angles are not great at dealing with stress. That corner creates a weakness. So if we imagine the tree went down from a vertical trunk and then turned 90 degrees out to the roots, you'd have a right angle and the first strong wind, it would create huge stresses there. So we end up with this curve from the trunk to the roots. And this can be seen from quite a long distance, actually. So we don't even have to be a few feet away from the tree looking at the roots in the ground, you know, just above the ground. You can actually be, you know, hundreds of feet, even a thousand feet away from a tree. And once you're practiced, you can see the curve in the base of the trunk. It's what I've nicknamed in, in the book, the elephant's toes. If we imagine an elephant's foot, we don't expect it to be a perfect cylinder. And there are indeed on an elephant's foot, there's just a little curve out towards the toes. And that little curve is what we see at the base of trees when we practice looking for it. Well, let's talk about leaves. What can we learn about the environment by looking at the color and shape of either a tree's leaves or needles if it's a conifer? Yeah, I, I just find it absolutely, it's, it's wonderful. It's almost miraculous, the variety there is in leaves. And it's very, I found it very instructive for me. And I do write about this because I think it's, it's a really helpful way of understanding that, that there is nothing random in nature. Nature is super, super competitive. So the idea that, that anything in the natural world just does something because it's decorative or pretty or, or different for the sake of it, it just, that's just not how nature works. And of course, when we think about it, we know that. But it is kind of tempting to think, well, of course, there's going to be lots of variety. But in my world of looking for clues and signs, it's all about turning that on its head instead of sort of going, well, that's just kind of nice and pretty and different and saying, what is the reason for the difference? And leaves are a fantastic area to experience this because, you know, on a, on a walk of half an hour, we might easily see, you know, dozens of different leaf shapes and colors. And if we say each one of those differences is trying to tell us something. So how do, how do we actually find the meaning? Well, we start with the big, bold, broad pattern. So a big, broad leaf is looking to harvest loads of light, but it's very vulnerable to tough conditions. So it suits trees that shed their leaves in the winter. You'll find super broad leaves in places where trees are expecting to be in the shade. So we only get tall trees and small trees. There are very few medium trees because it's, it's a bad strategy. But the smaller trees quite often expect to get shaded, so they throw out these very broad leaves. A broad leaf is telling you this is a tree that's obviously going to shed them, but also is expecting lots of shade. A point at the end of a leaf, a really marked point in broad leaves, is telling you you're in a wet area because points are good at channeling rainwater off a leaf. Rainwater is, you know, it's, it's weight and stress that a leaf can do without. So anything it can do to shed that weight is good news, and points at the end, at the tips of leaves are a sign you're in a wet area. That's why in jungles, we find lots and lots of pointed leaves. If a tree is expecting to cope with very tough conditions, it has to get smaller. That's why conifers have needles, not broad leaves. Uh, and every single color is telling us something as well. So for example, in conifers, you know, trees love sunlight, but sunlight is damaging. The radiation in sunlight is very powerful. And so, so leaves have this dilemma. They want the energy from the sunlight, but they have to protect themselves so sometimes on conifers, you'll see a white or occasionally a blue sheen. 
Uh, and that's wax, which is protecting the leaves. And because there's more sunlight on the south side, we get more of a blue or white color on the south side. And this, you can see this like in a single tree, like a tree might have darker green leaves on one side compared to the other. Yes. What, what we find is if a tree's leaves are getting enough light, then the, the signals in the tree are, you just keep doing what you're doing. If, however, there are leaves on a branch and there's not enough energy coming back, the tree senses this and it changes the signal, it changes the message, and it changes the leaves from sun leaves to shade leaves, which means they get bigger, darker, because they pump in more chlorophyll, and they actually get thinner because they're effectively spreading out. And what's happening here is it's, it's a sort of last roll of the dice. So the tree is saying to, to the leaves, look, we're going to change you to, to shade leaves, but you need to really start delivering now. If after um, you know a, a, a season that hasn't worked, the tree changes the signal again, and it'll start shutting that branch down, which leads to the pruning we talked about earlier. So all the time, trees are reacting to the environment, changing from the leaf level, and then that in turn leads to branch changes. And that's why no two trees are identical. When people often depict the seasons, like if they say, draw a picture of the four seasons, they'll usually include a tree. You know, they'll show what a tree looks like in winter. There's no leaves. It's bare. Spring, you're starting to see the flowers blossom, the leaves come on. Summer, it's just green leaves. And then in fall, the leaves change colors. But you highlight the fact that trees, besides those four broad seasons, they actually have hidden seasons. What are those hidden seasons and what can they tell us about that tree? Yeah, it's a fascinating area because I think, as you've highlighted there, our, our busy modern lives mean we tend to compartmentalize everything to simplify it, which can be very helpful. But when we're reading trees, we're talking about just going up a, a level and wanting to notice things that have passed us by. And that's where Four Seasons is an oversimplification. So if we take spring, for example, spring doesn't hit one country all, all at the same time. We know that. It won't even hit one region at the same time. So spring moves across a region, but it also moves across trees. So one of the most dramatic signs you can look for is how spring starts low and moves up. You'll find that there are flowers on the ground, wildflowers that come out before any of the trees come into leaf because they're trying to steal a march. They're trying to get, they're trying to jump the gun almost. But the smallest trees and the lowest branches will come into leaf next and then spring moves upwards. So by the time most people are walking around going, oh, it's spring, the, the leaves are out. Actually, we've seen two, two springs already, and there are, there are you know half a dozen other ones that, that we can see. So in each individual tree, the tree is sensing the seasons in all of its growing areas. So it can actually tell that it's going to be colder near the ground because of a frost and respond to that differently. So we can actually see the seasons move almost branch by branch up a tree. At the other end of the, the broadleaf growing season, we, we have fall. And again, we, we sort of get used to this idea that there's this sort of magical moment or maybe a magical two weeks where there are fantastic golden colors and reds and things like this. But actually, each tree, again, is it's not interesting putting on a show for us. Lovely when it happens, but that's not the tree's aim. The tree's aim is to be efficient and do things in a practical way. So what we find is that the leaves will turn at the furthest point from the roots, so the highest part of the tree, but also in the warmest areas first. So we find that uh, the colors will start in the highest southern part of a tree. So it's very, very common to notice fall arriving in the high southern part of a tree weeks before in, in a big tree, you know, a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks before the low northern part of the very same tree. 
how does a tree figure out when it needs to start blossoming in the spring and when it needs to start shedding its leaves during the fall? Like what, what is it looking at in the environment to figure that out? The tree senses two different things. It senses the length of night. We tend to think of the day as getting longer, but the tree's looking at it a slightly different way. The shorter the night, the closer to the growing season the tree gets. So that's the astronomical cue. And that will be the same every single year, you know, pretty much to within a, a few hours. So the tree could just base itself on the length of night. And that would mean that the leaves came out on the same day every single year, which would be a tiny bit boring, but it would work in one sense. But the problem is, we know that spring is a tough season to call. The way I put it is, you know, for anybody who's ever organized an outdoor event in April, we know that this is a, this is a tricky thing to call. So trees could take the safety first strategy and say, okay, I'm just not going to put any leaves out until the risk of frost is completely gone. So let's just wait till the 1st of June, for example. The problem then is they've lost the competition because trees that go earlier will get lots and lots of lovely warmth and light. So what trees do is they count warm hours. So they're aware of the length of night, but they're also counting warm hours. And this is how trees sense that winter has been. They count cold hours. And then when the number of warm hours reaches a certain number, and in commercially valuable uh, crops like peach, for example, the the science is amazing. Uh, We we know almost exactly to the hour how many uh, hours, for example, a a peach cultivar like, like mayflower or something like that will need. So it needs the night to get to a certain certain length, shorter than a certain number of hours, and it needs X thousand hours of warmth. And then it just goes, right, it's spring, let's get this show on. But then as we've discussed, it, it won't do it all over the tree at exactly the same moment. That's when it starts the process in the warmest part of the tree, and it'll move over the rest of it. So we, we've talked about some of the signs we can look for in trees, and there's lots more in the book. But I'm curious, if someone is listening to this episode, and they want to start reading trees like right now they walk out their door and take a walk in their neighborhood what are like three or four things that you think are easy to start noticing and how to read a tree and looking for signs on how to navigate the three areas i'd encourage people to look for are water sun and wind and depending where you are in the world one or two of those you know you might get to almost immediately but whenever you're standing anywhere near water, it doesn't need to be a vast amount of water. It can be a, a small pond or lake. If there happens to be a tree next to it, just start to, to notice. And again, we don't need the names. It's fantastic that we've barely mentioned a species name in our chat. So just notice what the trees look like there. And then the next time you're well away from water, just look at the trees there. And if you do that a few times, you're starting the simplest practical end of map making using trees. Indigenous people would find it hilarious, the idea that that we find water by looking for water. The trees will tell us where water is. All trees are sensitive to water. So so we get things like willows close to water and lots of uh, dry soil loving trees further away from that. But the next thing to look for is the sun changing the the shape of trees. So, So notice how no tree is symmetrical. Every single tree on planet Earth, of all the billions of trees, there is not one symmetrical one. And just start to notice how the light is changing the patterns. We get more branches on the south side, and they're slightly closer to horizontal in the broadleaf trees. And then look for wind patterns. Notice how trees in windy places are shorter, but look at how the very top part of the tree will will quite often be bent over by any strong winds uh, giving you a compass. So water, sun, and wind, really, really sort of good place to start. Look for those footprints, and that will get you up and running. I've been looking for the uh, southern eye. That's the thing I've been focusing on when I'm out in my sort of in a wooded area. And yeah, you see them. It's interesting. Like sometimes they're really small, sometimes they're really big, but they're there. It's really cool once you once you notice it. Well, Tristan, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? 
Thanks. How to Read a Tree can be ordered through all the usual places. And I, I love it when people support their local bookstore, if that's an option. For information, my website, naturalnavigator.com, has lots and lots of examples. You can get a real taste for the signs you can find in trees and indeed in nature. Tons and tons of information on there. So uh, yeah, naturalnavigator.com will give you lots of fun info. All right. Well, Tristan Gooley, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Brett. Really enjoyed our chat. My guest today was Tristan Gooley. He's the author of the book, How to Read a Tree. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, naturalnavigator.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash readatree. We can find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you'll find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS to start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to not listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.